your stories. I just, that was a word from God for you. And if you go into this week and maybe you all of a sudden feel a joy where there was pressure, come and let us know about it because you know it's so great to celebrate when God speaks something, the testimonies of how God works. All right, before we get the amazing Lisa Gowan up to preach, I just want to say a quick happy birthday to Leanne's mum, Anne, up the back there. It's her 70th birthday. She didn't know I was going to do that. Happy birthday, Anne. It's great to have you with us. Everyone go up and give her hugs at the end. I'm sure she'll love that. <laughs> anyway, it's now my pleasure to introduce Lisa Gowan. I know she's got an awesome word on her heart. Let's give her a hand as she comes up. Thanks, Lisa. Hello. Now, most of the time when people get up here to speak, they start off with a really funny story that somehow links into their message. I don't have one. Um, but this morning on the way here to church, um, Jasper, our four, nearly five-year-old, was super cute. I got breathalyzed. I seem to get breathalyzed every time I'm coming to church at the moment on the school, on the, um, school holidays. And so the kids understand what that is because they're like, why are you counting into the thing and what have you done wrong? Why are they pulling you over? And so we've explained what this is. And our kids are always super excited to see the policeman, which I think is awesome. Um, and they're just like, hi. Um, <laughs> And after I'd finished getting breathalyzed this morning, Jasper just looks at the police officer, he's like, I drink lots of milk. <laughs> this police officer, I don't know whether he connected the dots as to that, but um, Ads and I were just cracking up and thought that was super cute. Um, I, I really hope that he brought some joy to that police officer this morning. He certainly brought joy to us. Um, so that's my little cute, funny story to start off. If you can connect the dots to it all, feel free. Um, but basically, the last couple of times I've spoken, I've really focused on sharing about God's love and his passion to bring people to himself through a restorative justice. So a justice that revives lives. It brings life and hope instead of punishing people and sending them into an isolation. And I've spoken about trauma and the flow-on effect of trauma in a person's life and the importance of having relationships that are really focused on bringing healing in restoring people. I've shared about the importance of loving people with God's love and graciously remembering the very real and complex stories of pain that every person carries with them and the impact that that can have day to day on people and the choices that they make. I've explored what it looks like when God's love and grace is injected into those broken lives, into our broken lives, broken communities, and seeing the restoration of people within themselves through that presence and the restoration of people back to community and back to each other. So that's a snippet of my last two messages. So today, similar, but a little bit different. So last time I briefly mentioned um, a South African concept, Ubuntu. So broadly, it, refused, it refers to our humanness being found through our interdependence, our collective engagement, and our service to other people. And that's really where I want to focus on today, that connection between us and our relationships with other people. So more specifically, the concept and the expression of Ubuntu has two different parts. So first, the person who's expressing this is 
friendly, hospitable, generous, gentle, caring and compassionate. I want to be that person. It's someone who's going to use their strength on behalf of other people, on behalf of the weak, the poor and the ill. And then because of this heart and these actions and this use of your strength on behalf of others, the person expresses the second part of the concept of Ubuntu, which is an openness and a large-heartedness. People share their worth with others. And I know there's something about that that really captures me, sharing your worth with other people when we live in a world where so many people feel worthless. So when I'm living my life that way, my humanity is recognised and becomes bound to the humanity of other people. We get interconnected. And um, I guess this concept gets summed up in a little phrase that a person is a person through other people. Our full expression of who we are comes out through our relationships. So we need other people in our life to be fully human and to fully express the goodness and the greatness of God and what he's put on our life and what he desires for other people. So Ubuntu looks at, I, I guess, the idea that if we're diminishing and putting down each other, we're also actually doing that to ourselves. But if we are stepping up and raising up other people and helping them find freedom, then we all find freedom together. I think I'm probably going to come back to that in a future message. But, you know, there's only so much I can say in one period of time. So, we're at this point in society where human life is often treated very cheaply. The rates of abuse, the rates of people being killed are staggering. And it's in this time more than any other that we as the church, as God's people, need to stand up and say every life matters. People matter and they matter enormously. So today I really want to look at a deceptively simple question. If God's calling us into relationship with him and into relationship with other people, so real relationships that restore justice and dignity and hope and life, relationships that recognise worth and call people up into who they're meant to be, relationships that have substance, not just a tokenistic, hi, how you going kind of acknowledgement of each other. How do we actually do that? And who do we do that with? Because there's a whole lot of people in this world. So I'm going to focus a lot on the parable of the Good Samaritan today. So it's a section of scripture that we're probably mostly familiar with and could almost kind of retell a little bit. And I think when it comes to the Bible, it's really easy to just do a surface level reading where kind of we get the gist of it. We kind of go, okay, that's how it applies to my life. And then we move on. But when we do that and we just read it at like a common sense surface level, we often miss the richness of what's there to be found by understanding the context of the culture at the time when these words were spoken, the way that culture has changed over time, the way that words have been translated over time. 
And I find for most verses, there's, it, it might take up this much room in your Bible, but there's this much that can be said about it. So I'm going to look a little bit deeper today, but by no means am I looking at everything that can be found in this scripture. There is so much more. Um, I just, as I said, don't have time. So I'm going to just read out the first part of this from Luke 10, starting at verse 25 to 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? That's the question we're going to sit with today. So this lawyer, teacher, scribe, asks a question that's really fundamental for us to consider in every relationship that we have. Who is my neighbour? Who am I responsible for when it comes to justice and showing God's mercy? And so Jesus' answer to this question was the parable of the Good Samaritan. So picking up again in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So to look at some of the background of why this is important, the question of neighbourliness was important for the nation of Israel because of their identity as being God's chosen people, sealed through the rite of circumcision. Israel was set apart amongst the nations and had been you know, for all time, just about. And this made the people of Israel particularly loyal to their own kind. And at the same time, kind of gave way to a bit of a tendency to neglect, sometimes condemn, those who were not Israelites and those who were different to them. So the Israelites showed a special love for their fellow Israelites because they were bound together by race and the covenant with God. So God gave specific laws that, um, to encourage compassion and justice for other people who were not from Israel, 
Moses made special legal provision for people from other nations to be included in the faith of God that the Israelite nation had. And those laws demanded both, uh, both compassion and justice to be guaranteed for the foreigners because God loved them too. So many of the teachers in Old Testament and in Jesus' time regarded the term neighbour as a term that had kind of a limited capacity, a limited application, and argued endlessly about which men could be excluded from that commandment. The lawyer asks the question here, maybe not so much to know the answer for himself, but to test Jesus' knowledge of the scripture and the law, and to justify his own prejudices and his own actions, or inaction. I love that Jesus doesn't even enter the debate. He answers instead with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in his answer, he shows that the correct question is not, who is my neighbour? It's the question that's asked, but it's not the question to consider. The better question is, who can I be a neighbour to? So he's encouraging and compelling the lawyer here to measure his own life against this new standard that Jesus is setting. So we see in every aspect of Jesus' life, his ministry, his relationships, he sought to expand this concept of neighbour. For Jesus, a neighbour was anyone whom you came in contact with, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, anyone. So this was new and it was radical. Every person Jesus was calling up to show mercy and justice to every other person without barrier, without excuse, without limit. His focus on expanding the definition of neighbour led to the breaking down of the historical barriers of cleanliness and uncleanliness. I don't know about you, but I'm real glad about that living today. We can understand this parable as ultimately addressing the question of the limits of our personal responsibility to show justice and mercy to other people. And we see that Jesus is really clearly saying, there are no limits. We cannot exclusively show compassion and mercy to one person or one group of people and not others. So Jesus' practice, as we see through the Bible, and which I explored in a bit more detail last time, was to show love to every single person he could reach. And that's what he's asking us to do. The onus is not on someone else to be my neighbour. The onus is on me to be their neighbour. That's the shift. And so this can seem like a really huge undertaking and a really tiring undertaking and a really risky undertaking. Showing such love and mercy to everyone so I want to look at, I guess, the different actions and choices that we see through this parable in a little bit more detail and explain, hopefully, a bit of, I guess, what I feel has been the heart behind it and what it might look like now. So, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
as I've shared before, most of us have been impacted by at least one ex unexpected or undeserved attack or trauma in our lives. There is no one who gets through life unscathed. And if it hasn't happened directly in our own life, it's probably happened in the generations before us. So at one point or another, we've been left in different positions of pain, injured, sometimes near death, naked and vulnerable, not always literally, but emotionally, alone, with our dignity, our safety, and our covering, covering stolen. I know I felt like that many times in my life. This brokenness and this trauma has many symptoms that today we just like to clinically break down into mental health, addiction, crime, those sorts of things. And that way of viewing people and viewing brokenness isolates people. And it then becomes a cycle of repeated trauma as people become trapped in those difficulties. And they just keep using the same strategies to numb their pain. We're in a world that's full of people who are broken and lying on the side of the road half dead. And so today I'm really hoping that as I share my heart towards some of this stuff, we'll all get a greater heart towards reaching out to the people in our world who need God the most. So a priest and a Levite, while travelling, came to and saw the broken man, then crossed the road to avoid him. So as we travel through this life, it's inevitable that we're going to come to situations where we see people existing in brokenness. Uh, we just have to look at even the things that we've prayed for this morning that, to see that there is pain around us. And when we see that pain and hear of that pain, we have the choice about what we're going to do about it. So the priest and the Levite saw the pain and they avoided it. To approach this man, to even work out whether he was dead or alive, was to risk them becoming unclean in their society. And so for them, they made the choice that it was more important for them to stay clean than to find out if this man was alive or could be revived and brought to healing. awaiting that choice. Too often we pass judgment on a person's worth by the signs and the symptoms of their brokenness, by their circumstances, and by the potential impact of our association with them instead of their inherent value in God. The Bible so clear. Every person, man and woman, is made in God's image. Everyone. And on that fact alone, every single life has amazing value to God and therefore they should have value to us. So when we choose to only reach out with love, justice and mercy to some people and not others, I wonder if what we're really saying is some people are worth more than others, either because of their position and choices or our own. 
And that's not what God's saying. So we have the Samaritan. While travelling, he comes to the man. He saw him and he took pity on him. So the Samaritan saw, but he did not turn away from the pain and the suffering that was in front of him. Instead, he approached the brokenness and because he did, he could see the person in that circumstance. He looked beyond the symptoms and the mess and he saw the man. And in seeing the man, he was moved with pity. He didn't pass any judgment on how the man came to be in that position, naked, broken on the side of the road. We need to do the same. We need to see people, really see people, not just their circumstances and symptoms. It's only when we can get past the symptoms that we're going to be moved to actually do something. So I think back on my own life. There's a lot of visitors here today, so you don't necessarily know my background. But the symptoms of trauma were all there. I was suicidal, mucking around with witchcraft, taking whatever drugs were offered me, and drunk whenever possible. Those symptoms did not make for a pretty combination. If you'd seen a young person with that level of brokenness, would you have seen my behaviour or would you have seen me? Would you have blamed me for my brokenness and crossed the road in silent judgement and looked away? Or would you have come close, seen me, the little girl, felt something. Would you have felt a response that urged you to action? Would you have been a neighbour to me? And I'm sure we can all look back on different times in our life and find similar circumstances and pose the same question. So the Samaritan goes to him, bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he puts the man on his own donkey, brings him to an inn and takes care of him. So the Samaritan's gone to him. And being moved by brokenness is really damn uncomfortable. And that's okay. Even in that moment that we see and feel something, we can make that choice to turn away because the weight of it is too much to carry. But God asks us to see, to go, to feel and to do something about it. To bind someone else's wounds, we need to be close enough to see them. So the Samaritan here washes and bandages the wounds, gives up his own comfort on his journey for the man and takes him to a place where he can recover. I wonder whether the specific mention of the oil and the wine is particularly important here. So we know through the Bible that oil was used for anointing, and it still is, and setting people aside for God's purposes. And wine was used to wash wounds and prevent infection. So as we go into the brokenness, 
We love people with God's love. We share his anointing with other people. And we provide an opportunity for their wounds to heal without further pain and infection. As we freely give of the incredible love that we've already received, other people find healing. And as we love them and we introduce people to Jesus through that love, we are ultimately carrying them and leading them forward to a place where they can recover, have their dignity restored, where they can be cared for, find healing and rest, and where they can find Jesus. So the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. Healing, rest and recovery take time. It was years for me, even after I came to Christ, to get through the first full measure of my healing. And I'm still on that journey now. I can't even count how many years later. A lot. If we're going to pay the cost, though, to help other people find healing, we can't have an expectation that somehow we're going to get reimbursed for that. There's no mention of reimbursement here. The Samaritan just gives freely what he can at that time. People need a place of safety where they're not going to be exposed to the ongoing cycles of trauma with people who are going to invest in their future and their healing with them without any expectation of things coming back. That's the role of the church in society today. This should be a place where anyone can come and find love and healing and recovery and build relationships where people are going to genuinely care about them. So to be a neighbour, we have to choose to see other people, despite their presentation or their position, broken or whole. We have to choose to approach the person and choose to feel something and carry that. We have to choose to stay by their side for whatever period of time we're meant to be there. We have to choose to do something in the moment and choose to invite people on the journey with us to find healing and recovery. We have to choose love, ju justice and mercy again and again and again with limitless views of who's worthy of receiving it. We have to step forward and move to embrace people with a practical expression of God's love. Not just talking about God's love or singing about God's love, but embracing people with God's love. And in doing so, helping them find the restoration that God so greatly desires to give them. So there's this guy. I don't know his background. Um, Miroslav Volf. Adam's reading a book about him and Adam was just like, hey, this bit's relevant. So I've read that bit of the book. Um, but basically, he writes about exclusion and embrace. And he's doing this through exploring the Bible and theology and different ideas of identity, otherness, reconciliation. 
I would love to recommend the book to you, but I read about five pages and had a headache for two hours. Um, my gosh, his writing is very intellectual and it hurt. Um, I had to get Adam to make sure that I'd correctly interpreted what this guy was actually saying. Um, so I'm going to quote him a little bit. So if any of these sentences seem a little bit big, it's not my words. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it in the same time and make it practical. So apologies in advance. Stick with me. So he writes about the drama of embrace. And that's what I want to just focus on for this next little bit, how we actually embrace the people in our lives. So, the four structural components and elements in the movement of embrace, you can picture these in your mind fairly easily. We open our arms, we wait, we close our arms, but then we open them again, yeah? So for an embrace to happen, all four parts have to be there. And they have to happen in that order. So if we stop with the first two, opening our arms and waiting, there is no embrace. If we stop with the third one, closing our arms, what's meant to be an act of love becomes an act of force and coercion and oppression and abuse. They all need to be there in a seamless movement. So to take each of these ones one, one at a time. Open arms. It's a gesture of my body reaching out to someone else's. It's a sign of me saying, I'm not happy here just on my own in my own little bubble. I want other people with me. And I want to be close to other people. I want them to share this space with me. It's an invitation for someone else to come close. So we saw earlier that the priest and the Levite came close, but they didn't open their arms. I imagine them kind of walking away, I don't know, some kind of pious pose with their hands intertwined or something, but their arms were held close to their bodies, not open. There was no consideration we see, see here of them reaching out. The Samaritan, on the other hand, comes close. And I think his arms metaphorically start to open the moment he really sees the man and decides to stay. And he's got an openness to look beyond his own journey and his busyness and his life and to create a space to be close to this man to help him. So the waiting. Our arms reach out, but they stop sometimes just for a moment, depending on how well we know the person, before we enter into the fullness of the embrace. We've extended the invitation, but we also allow people the power to say no. And sometimes they do. And that's their choice, and that's okay. Our choice is to invite. We can't force an embrace on someone who doesn't want it. We can't force our love on someone who's saying, no, leave me alone. We find a way around it. We continue to show love in other ways and keep that door open.
but we respect other people's choices. And while I know that this Samaritan is half dead, oh, sorry, the um, man is half dead on the side of the road, I don't know whether he was vocal or not, but I imagine the Samaritan approaching him with gentle words, reassuring him that he's not there to do further harm, whispering almost, gently coming towards him. And in those moments, there's space for the, Samar for the man on the side of the road to say no, to pull away. And to really love people, we have to sometimes respect their choices, even if we disagree with it and we think we know a better way. When people have been hurt in the past, they're often pretty reluctant to get close to people again. They're scared that they're going to be hurt again, and my gosh, I can understand that. They might see our open arms and our attempts to show love as threatening, as an opportunity for more harm. And that's why it's important that we allow people to say no, because if we force them into something they're not ready for, we're just repeating the same harm again in their life and taking away their power. People have to have the option to say yes to God and his love. But sometimes they'll say no. And manipulation is never God's way. <coughs> so closing the arms. This is the goal of the embrace. And it's unthinkable unless you're tackling your child to the ground because they're running onto the road, um, for, you know, this, for those arms to close without the other person reciprocating and doing the same thing back. Both people hold each other as an active act. And while holding each other, they're also being held by the other person. The goal is a touch that's soft, that's safe. It doesn't crush or overwhelm or control. There's no force. So in this embrace, while the arms are closed, each person's identity is maintained. People aren't blended into each other or cloned. And it's important as we're interacting with every person and embracing people that we hold on to this quite unusual ability to not understand them. There are many people I do not understand in life, and I'm okay with that. This is not about always trying to understand the other person. It's about loving them irrespective of that. To embrace people and to love them with a curiosity, with a question of who they are and how they came to be there. Drawing them close and into our lives but without forcing them to become exactly like us and hold our views. So the Good Samaritan, I think, closes his arms around the man as he washes and binds his wounds, puts him on the donkey and provides a safe place for him. We don't read here of coercion or force or interrogation or judgment. We read of love, mercy and kindness made real. There's no effort to change who the man is or what path he's on. But I think that by this very encounter, his life was probably very different. 
A good embrace feels like coming home. And I remember when I first came to church, I felt loved, not judged. I still carried my wounds, but slowly they were bound as I found God more and more, and I found a place to recover without threat. I could have walked away at any time, but that embrace was something so beautiful that I didn't want to. For the first time I'd felt safe and I was starting to feel whole. When I'm in people's lives, that's the feeling I want them to get from being around me. Because I know as they're feeling that, that's not me that they're feeling, that's actually God that they're feeling through my actions. And that's gonna bring them on that next little step closer to knowing God. But the arms have to open again. So a healthy embrace still has two individuals, like I said, they're not meshed together to become one. There's no blurring of boundaries or forcing people. People maintain their own God-given unique identity and journey. So we have to allow this embrace to change us without robbing us of who we are or robbing other people of who they are. We shouldn't be unchanged by our interactions with other people, but neither are we bound to them forever. So the Samaritan comes back to check on the man to ensure that he's done all that he can to help him, but then he ended the embrace and they each went on their separate paths. The Samaritan didn't position himself so this other man becomes dependent on him and the Samaritan's identity was not dependent on helping this other man. They were both impacted, but different. You can't be intimately involved in someone's life without carrying a part of their journey with you and carrying a part of their story with you. And so I very much think that these guys, these two men, probably remembered each other for quite a while and remembered what they'd done to and for each other. But I do think when it comes to embracing people and loving people, there's a few very valid cautions. So too often I've seen people come into the church and be embraced and they've become dependent on the people, not on the God or the people within the church have started to find their identity in rescuing people instead of in God. And so we need to watch our relationships and our love for other people, that it does not take away from an identity and a faith in God and God being God, not us. Each time I've seen people get that a little bit messed up, it's ended in pain. And more often than not, people actually walking away from God altogether. God wants us to embrace people, to love people. But the goal is always to point them to him, not to ourselves. So at an African conference, I don't know the year, but Desmond Tutu told the assembly, we are true witnesses if we are on the side of the weak, the powerless, the exploited. 
And that reminds me of Matthew 25, 34 to to 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did you see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Just get ads up. Um, No one is insignificant to God. No one. He's positioned each of us with different relationships, skills and passions to embrace every single person. So within this, we need to be careful of how we love, that we don't extend beyond the resources and the capabilities that God's given us, and that we don't put our lives or our families at unreasonable risk. There are many things I would love to do with just bringing people into my home, but with three small children, I can't take that risk for them. So there's some practicalities here and some cautions, but we find how we can love and we love, whether it's prayer, money, time, a meal, there's always something, a smile. Maybe that's the connection with the police officer this morning. Maybe he was having a rotten morning and Jasper just made him smile. Sometimes that's love. (sighs) Sorry, lost my place. So each of us, are called to be a neighbour to all people in a limitless sense, all mankind, all the time, using whatever we've got in our hands or our hearts in that moment and using it with wisdom. And so as we live our lives with the love, kindness, justice and mercy of God evident, live in lives of that Ubuntu, we're going to live lives of love that have an impact on the spirits and the hearts and the lives of people across the generations to come. Ultimately, God's desire through us being good neighbours is that he wants to see all people who are broken, who are captive in any situation, emotional, social, mental, psychological, physical, spiritual, healed and set free of all chains and everything that separates them from him. The love, the mercy, the restorative justice that we show people is for every person to walk in freedom and to come to know Jesus. This is to see our personal neighbours set free, whether it's a family member, a work colleague, an old school friend, a stranger in the street, the people we actually come in contact with. But the cool thing is we're also in a really unique time in history where technology with travel and communication 
allows us to be neighbours to people we never would have been able to in the past. I'm still connected to people that I met in America 14 years ago on social media. And I can still be a neighbour to them through Facebook. Weird concept, but true. Through what we do here at our church, we can be neighbours to the widows in India who we support with Sharon going over there and distributing saris to restore dignity. We can be neighbours to the children in Tanga where we support their school. We could be neighbours to the people that Patrick and Rebecca are seeking to minister to. There are no limits. There's no limits on who God's calling us to reach and ultimately there's no limits in who we can reach now with technology the way that it is. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I guess my encouragement for you today is to take the time to really examine how you can love people in your world, here in Ulladulla, in your extended family, broader, without limit. Who are you willing to love? Who needs your embrace? And who are you willing to embrace? Ads is going to sing a song for us, um, a Tim Hughes song called God of Justice. I think the words might end up coming up. I just want you guys to sit and listen and ponder these questions and to take the time moving forward to keep pondering them. I know for me, as I started questioning this stuff myself, everything I read in the Bible moved from this filter of being, how can God help me? And how can God restore me? Which I needed at that time. My gosh, I needed at that time. But it moved from that to how can God use me to minister to other people? And how can God use me to love other people? And so my hope is we all go on this journey together, always finding new ways to open our arms and embrace the people in our lives. So as Ad sings, take some time to think and wonder. And I want you to think about who God's positioned you to be a neighbour to today. God of justice, saviour to all, come to rescue the weak and the poor. Chose to serve and not be served. Jesus, you have called us. Freely we've received now. Freely we will give. We must go. Live to feed the hungry. Stand beside the broken. We must go, stepping forward, keep us from just singing, move us into action. We must go, to act justly every day. 
loving mercy in every way working humbly before you our God you have shown us what you require freely we've received now freely we will give we will go live to feed the hungry stand beside the broken we will go stepping forward keep us from just singing move us into action we must go fill us up and send us out fill us up and send us out fill us up and send us out lord fill us up and send us out fill us up and send us out fill us up and send us out lord we must go live to feed the hungry stand beside the broken we must go stepping forward keep us from just singing move us into action we must go we must go live to feed the hungry stand beside the broken we must go stepping forward keep us from just singing lead us into action we must go Hello. <laughs> Moment ruined. Now we thank you, God, for that beautiful message that Lisa shared, God. I thank you that you would just continue to be stirring our hearts to be looking out for others. And I just thank you for the wisdom in what Lisa said, God. I thank you that you would continue to lead us. Amen. How good was that, hey? Beautiful, beautiful wisdom. And I love that picture of that embrace, Lisa, that you said. And I guess sometimes those lines can get blurred with what Lisa was saying when we hang on to people or we draw our identity out of rescuing others and when our own heart isn't actually whole. So it's important for us to find wholeness within us first so then we can go and help others. Someone said that, you know, a sinking ship can't save anyone. So may we allow God to do a work in us so we can then help others. Amen. I just wanted to um, do a little thing to finish that fits in with Lisa's message as well. Uh, actually, uh, Jen and Lynn are going to come up with me just for a moment. Jen and Lynn both teach scripture at Badawang, and they do a beautiful job. And Jen, because of family commitments, actually has to be free to help 
her son, who's got a little baby and a wife who needs a lot of care, and so that's important that Jen can do that, which means Lynn is looking for someone to do scripture at Butterwang with her. And I just thought, what a beautiful opportunity after what Lisa was saying to actually love our neighbour and reach out to those in our world. And I just wanted the, these ladies to share a story that they've shared with us before about a little boy in that class and... Um, yeah, may, maybe it will just stir your heart just to the difference you could be making in someone's life. So who wants to share? Jen or Lynn? Um, yeah, I'll actually <laughs> let you talk about Chase. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll share a little bit. Um, yeah, for six years we've had a team of people that have gone into the school with special needs. And it's not really, um, for those who've actually, Rachel's been part of that team as well. It's not really any, you don't have to have, be a super person. It's to just have a heart to go in and love and serve. And we've seen amazing breakthrough, not only with the, the students, um, but with the staff and the families, that, um, the parents who come to pick up the students. And there's often been um, a question in people's minds there, why, why do you come in every Thursday afternoon, 50 minutes? So if what we are needing is um, people who perhaps could support Lynn in an ongoing way for this year. If you can only commit to a term or for only a short time, that would still be good. So if you could talk to me, I've got resources, I can train you. And uh, Lynn has a special story of a young man in that class that we've had. <laughs> Jen doesn't want to say it because it's about Jen. <laughs> we have a little boy in our class and he's probably on the spectrum, do you think? Yes, I think so. And he's very naughty, very disruptive, very... You could slap him down, but you're not allowed to. <laughs> and for one term, he didn't want to come, and the teachers told us that his mother said he didn't have to come back, so Jen said, well, that's OK. And then he did come back, and then Jen used to take her guitar in, and he'd want to have a game of the guitar, so she let him start to strum the guitar. And then we do play a song with air guitars and things, so he's always playing it. And then he, at the school, had a didgeridoo. So he started to play, and every single time now we do songs, he says to Jen, can you play the didgeridoo? He's turned into a model student. He's really, really good, and the teachers are, are commenting on, on the change in the little boy. But I think the trick is, or if it is a trick, is to not look at the disability, but look at the kid, and know that each one of those kids have got a gift, Try and find it and encourage that out in the kids and you, you just see such a big change and it's such a blessing. So beautiful that that young man was just drawn into what was going on in there. And I think it just fits in so well with what Lisa said, looking to the person, hey, not the circumstance or the labels, but looking beyond, and those ladies do it so beautifully. So if you would love to be involved with that, please see Jen, an awesome opportunity. We also have our scripture teacher, Teachers Commissioning Service coming up at the Anglican Church on the 10th of February, Sunday night. So if you would like to come along and support all of our amazing scripture teachers, please come along to that. And we also have our team night happening next Sunday, 3rd of February, 7pm at church. So if anyone wants to be involved in coming along and just hearing more about the heart of the church and googling together, we'd love to have you there 7 o'clock next Sunday night. Otherwise, we'll see you in church next Sunday morning, 10am. Have an awesome week. Enjoy going back to school, everyone. Or oh, not the adults, but enjoy your kids going back to school. And uh, we'll see you in church next week. Let's give